Well, I was uh, I was on standby Friday, and Saturday I got the call that uh, I would be preaching today, and so uh, I had to go to sermons.com and find something <laughs> in a rush. <laughs> hey, Tom, I was going to tell you, uh, where's Tom? There he is. Okay. I was going to tell you, I'm Sicilian. We don't do trunk or treat. We do trick or trunk. Which means if the kids don't do a trick, we stuff them in the trunk. <laughs> Take the cannolis, leave the gun. <laughs> Sorry. That's a uh, Godfather reference there. For those who are viewing online, I'd like to welcome you to Ambassador Bible Fellowship. My name is Thomas Herringshaw. <laughs> My name is Vince Nicotra. I'm just glad to be here this morning with you. I know there are a lot of people that are out sick. Uh, we failed to mention Jacob and uh, he's running a fever as well. I know there are lots of people out sick, and so we want to be in prayer for them. Uh, also, I know uh, many have been struggling with their employers. These vaccine mandates have been um, causing people to take a stand and lose their job. And I'm not going to preach on whether or not the vaccine is right to take or not. Uh, to me, uh, I, I think that's a personal decision. But I know many of you are struggling with your employers, and, and many people are being forced uh, out of their jobs for their desire to not take the vaccine. And so uh, I know there's a lot going on these days, a lot of suffering in various ways, and I think we should be in prayer uh, for one another in these times. But it led me, uh, as Thomas has been preaching on our great shepherd, it, it led me to a passage First uh, Peter chapter two verses twenty one to twenty five, um, where Jesus is our example in suffering, and um, you know we talk about Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died on the cross. Uh, his blood covers me. All that is true, but we fail often to talk about the manner in which Jesus suffered. And that's what Peter is after in this text. It's not just that Jesus died. It's the manner in which he went to the cross, his suffering along the way, the way he submitted to the Father's will. Uh, You don't want to miss this because this is instructive for believers. This is how we identify with our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's, It's identifying with his suffering is part of the sanctification process for us as believers. There's, there's much to be gained uh, from following Christ's example in suffering. And so this morning, uh, if you're not there already, we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll start the reading in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 
And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Clearly, the context is verse 21. You've been called for this purpose. Well, what purpose? Well, Peter is talking about suffering. Uh, By way of first interpretation, we'd have to say suffering, right? First part of Peter, salvation. Thomas will get there when we do this in our Titus 1. But first part of Peter is about salvation. Second part is suffering. So we're in the, the, um, well, I should say submission. Salvation, submission. We're in the submission section of the text. And uh, ultimately, what he's talking about here is submitting to those who are in authority over us. And you can see that in in chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or as to one in authority. Drop down to verse 20. What credit is there if you sin and are harshly treated, if you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So it's the manner in which we suffer. Not just suffering for suffering's sake, but but how we go through that suffering that is meaningful to God and pleasing to Him. See that? Verse 18. This passage that we're primarily looking at here is 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 really directed at servants submitting to their masters if their masters are mistreating them. See that? Verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And then there's no new chapter starting until chapter 3, verse 1. There's no, there's no break in the text. And so following under that text, is this instruction about submission to those who are in authority. Notice also over in chapter 3, let me just say, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, wives, likewise, in the same way, are to be submissive. If their husbands are unruly and they're ungodly, they're still to be submissive to their husbands. Husbands, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, in the same way, if you're living with an ungodly woman or, uh, or your situation at home is not great, then what are you supposed to do? In the same way, submit. In, in the one act of submitting to them, we're also submitting to God who judges righteously. And then he kind of sums it up down there in Chapter 3, verses 8 to 12, he says, To sum it up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called, here it is again, for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So, so clearly the text is about submission. And not only submission, but submission unjust in, in situations where people are suffering unjustly. Right? They're, they're, the person over them 
or the person they're having to deal with is mistreating them and they're having to suffer uh, unjustly. And so Peter uh, is going to take this and, and the application is just, I think, far and wide. If you are in an unbearable situation, this is a word about submission in the midst of it. How you go about suffering. Are you going to whine? Are you going to complain? Are you going to curse God? Are you going to be angry at God? Are you going to be angry at others? Road rage? How are you going to cope with unjust suffering? So the example for this is none other than Jesus Christ, who it says he suffered, he uttered no threats, he just kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This is a word for us in our culture. Boy, we like vengeance, don't we? I mean, just look at the movies that are out there. Rambo, First Blood, Second Blood, Third Blood, Last Blood. Right? I mean, we like vengeance. And, and those who do us evil, we want them to pay. And we want them to pay big time. But there is a word for us here about how to go through suffering. Now Christ, it says, also suffered for you, leaving you an example in verse 21. The word example in the Greek is uh, hypogrammon, and and that's the only time it's used in the New Testament. And basically what it is, it's it's a writing copy. So if for those of you who homeschool and you taught your children how to write the alphabet, you would know what I'm talking about. It's It's basically the writing copy that they're supposed to copy to, to draw their letters, right? And that's what it is. Jesus has become our writing copy. He is our example. He is what we are supposed to follow after, uh, like children learning to draw their alphabet. In order that, Peter says, this is a purpose clause, that you might follow in his footsteps. Like tracks in the snow, Christ's death left an example for us to follow. I'll say it again. The way in which Christ endured the cross is very instructive for us as believers. So today I want to look with you at three ways in which Christ's cross work sets a model for us to respond to unjust suffering. Three ways. And uh, they come out of verses 22, 23, 24. If you look at the text with me there, each one of those verses uh, begins with a relative pronoun, uh, which means the last person named Jesus, each one now starts with a, a clause, who. Okay? So follow the example of Jesus, who, while uh, being crucified, he committed no sin, right? Who, uh, while being reviled, he did not vile in return. Who, uh, himself, uh, who bore our sins in his body on the cross. So each one of those uh, verses starts with the phrase who, and it directly relates back up to Jesus Christ. He is our example, and this is how he suffered. This is how he went through his suffering. Okay? So first, Christ suffered sinlessly. You see that in verse 22. 
Christ suffered sinlessly. And the text says, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So notice this is uh, all caps. This verse is written in all caps, which means it's what? It comes from the Old Testament, right? Directly quoted over from the Old Testament. And it's particularly out of Isaiah 53, 9. And it says, uh, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So not only did the suffering servant die on behalf of his people, but he did it without sinning in the process. He was the perfect sacrificial lamb. A couple of weeks ago when I preached on Peter's first sermon in the book of Acts, I told you that Christ did not die for his own sins. He died for the sins of others. Not for any sin which he had personally committed. He was executed as an innocent man. Uh, sin, the, the word hamartia is a generic word for sin. He, he died without sin. He died without deceit. No guile or treachery. Nothing in his mouth. He did not sin against those who were sinning against him. That's the point. I always tell people, two wrongs don't make a right. Somebody sins against you, it doesn't mean it's right to sin back against them. I don't know where we ever got in our mind that that's the right thing to do, but it's not. In fact, the Scriptures would tell us just the opposite. If somebody sins against you, what are you supposed to do? Bless them. It's a different mindset. It's a different mindset being a follower of Christ. Jesus, here he was, going to the cross. He's, he's being whipped, beaten, mocked. His clothes are being sold off. He's, he's unjustly suffering these invalid trials. And the, the temptation to sin must have been overwhelming for him. Don't you think? I mean, I... I think in my mind sometimes, you know, he must have been thinking to himself, I came to die for these people and look what they're doing to me. I mean, I, I came to give my life as a ransom for them and look what they're doing to me. Yet, we know that bolstered by his deity, Christ resisted sin under this extreme duress. And it wasn't just that he lived a perfect life, but, but under the pressure, while unjustly suffering, he suffered sinlessly. That's, that's the point for us today. While you are going through suffering, how are you enduring it? Do you sin back toward people? Do you make them pay? Look at 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That means he was sinless. That means he was the perfect 
sacrifice. He had resigned himself to the providential care of his father. He was the the ultimate spirit-filled man, and he simply endured um, and, and did not sin in the process. Well, some of you may be thinking to yourself, yeah, but, but he, he was the God-man, right? Right? He's the God-man. He could take it. But the Scriptures don't, they don't really go overboard in portraying Christ's deity. They go overboard in portraying His humanity. Christ suffered as a man. He suffered as a man. He was God, but He was a man. And we wouldn't be called to view Him as an example of suffering if His suffering wasn't viewed as the sufferings of a man. So how do we avoid sin in the midst of unjust suffering? You and I fold like a styrofoam cup, right? When we feel we are being treated unjustly, man, we will come out of the chute defending ourselves. Quick to defend ourselves when we feel wronged, when there's no justification for the other person's actions. We can't find a reason why they're being the way they are toward us. We, we don't know why. We just know that it's not fun and they're making our life miserable. And we turn into Job and we start defending ourselves uh, and our own righteousness. Or we question why God is allowing such things to happen to us. Well, both of those are sinful responses. This uh, Puritan writer His name is Vavasor Powell, unusual name. But he said, It is and should be the care of a Christian not to suffer for sin, nor sin in suffering. And that's what Peter tells us. You don't want to suffer for being a bad person. If you suffer for doing what's right, then don't sin in that suffering. See, Satan himself is, is looking for a foothold. And he's looking for an opportunity to exploit your weakness. I should pluralize that, your weaknesses, because there are many. So later in this very letter, Peter gives some advice on how to handle the pressure in the midst of suffering, if you want to turn over to chapter 5. And he gives this to the elders. But he says, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So what's the counsel? Humility. Humble yourself. Humble yourself under the sovereign hand of God, verse 6. Verse 7, cast your cares, cast your anxieties upon God because He cares for you. Third, be sober. Be sober-minded. Be on the alert. The next trial for you is right around the corner. 
It's right around the corner, and you can either go walking into it like, like walking into one of those pits with the, with the spears at the bottom of it, or you can walk around it and avoid it and be sober-minded and be ready for it. But, but being on guard is the key. Don't get caught off guard. Be sober-minded. Peter says in verse 10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The suffering is temporary, but God has a purpose in it. It's for sanctification. It's to conform you to the image of Christ. And James tells us the way in which we suffer sanctifies us because it produces endurance And endurance has its perfect work that it leads to maturity. Maturity in Christ. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance produces what? Maturity. So Christ suffered sinlessly. Second, Christ suffered silently. Oh, this is a tough one. Way to hit me where I live, Pastor. (laughs) Right? While being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. He closed His mouth. He kept it closed. He did not revile. They, They beat Him. They mocked Him. Christ did not revile back. He did not exchange insult for insult. He didn't threaten those who were mistreating Him. And notice both of those verbs there are related to His speech while under duress. While suffering, He was silent. He was cursed, but He did not reply with curses. No threats of retaliation. Nada. And it's funny because if anybody could make a threat and keep it, (laughs) right, it would be Jesus, right? Uh, Turn over to Acts 23. Uh, This is interesting. Acts chapter 23, verses 1 to 5. This is the Apostle Paul, and he says, uh, looking intently at the council, uh, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, oops. I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Interesting. Paul didn't do so well at not reviling when he was reviled, right? It doesn't speak to Christ, but it gives us an example of what that might look like 
Here's Paul being dragged before rulers, being falsely accused, being slapped around for it, and he reviles in return. And it wasn't right. And he caught himself. Jesus endured the suffering of the cross silently. Again, this is an allusion to Isaiah 53, which is the suffering servant psalm. Uh, We know this. Uh, He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. I like to call this the silence of the Lamb. Interestingly, sheep are silent during the shearing process. When they are in a submissive posture on their back, they don't bleat. They don't make noise. They just lay there. When they're on their feet, they resist shearing. But again, the context of the passage is submission under duress. Now, how does one remain silent in the midst of suffering? Verse 23. Because he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Uh, This is actually an imperfect verb, which means that it was an ongoing past action. Jesus was continually entrusting himself or, or giving himself over to or committing himself to the Father, the one who judges righteously. He never stopped entrusting himself to God along the way. And this idea of judges righteously is actually a participle. I I just say this because I think it helps us to understand a little bit what Peter is after. It's more descriptive of who God is rather than what he does. It's descriptive of God's character. He is the righteously judging one. Jesus kept on committing himself to the righteously judging one. And that's how he was able to remain silent. He apprehended and was in submission to the sovereign will of the Father who dispenses all things according to his goodness and to his own perfect will. So when you find yourself suffering unjustly, where do you run? Where do you go? Where do you hide? The scriptures say that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are safe, right? 1 Peter 3, 8-9, to sum it up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. And then he tacks this on at the very end. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. That's the whole reason you were called. I mean, this is a complete turnaround in our mindset. We have to think completely different. The last thing we want to do is bless somebody who makes our life miserable. But if you're going to open your mouth, wouldn't my mama always say, if you ain't got nothing good to say, don't say anything at all? Right? Well, that holds true. Think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verses 59 to 60. What did he do? I mean, they rushed him down the hill. They were stoning him. And what does he do? 
He blesses them. How does someone get to the point where they bless their enemies instead of cursing them? I think the answer is they don't try to play God and judge their enemy. They simply seek to be obedient to Him in the midst of the suffering. And they also see all things coming from His loving hand for our good and for His glory. Right? It's not... It's all about Him. It's not all about us. But but even in the midst of that, God even uses the evil motives and actions of men to our good. Listen to this quote. Submission, resignation, and thanksgiving are not really marks of a believer unless they are coupled with faith, trust, and confidence in God's divine goodness. In other words, you shouldn't just endure suffering, grit your teeth, and bear up under it. You need to embrace by faith the reality that suffering is actually God's best for you at that moment. And trust in His goodness by faith. Romans 8.28 Right? We, We quote it often. We love it. It's one of our favorite verses. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That's, uh, what does Thomas say? It's an exact number. All, right? He he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Remember what Peter said, you have been called for this purpose. See, Jesus rested in the Father's will for His life, And that's the only way to avoid bitterness and contempt for what's happening to you. It's the only way to keep your mouth silent in the midst of what may appear to be unjust suffering. You have to commit or entrust yourself to Him who judges righteously. You have to patiently endure and trust Him for the outcome knowing that He has your best in mind. And you have to allow Him to defend you. God is your defender. This also means we have to redefine what good means. Good is what God causes... (laughs) Good is what God chooses to call good, not what we think is good for us. You understand that? Let me read that again. Good is what God chooses to call good, not what we think is good for us. That may include unjust suffering. Think about it. The greatest evil ever committed was also the greatest good for us. The crucifixion. Right? Christ suffered sinlessly. He suffered silently. And finally, I'm going to end on time today. Third, Christ suffered selflessly. 
verses 24 to 25. Again, the text starts with a who, who bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Christ's work in our lives obviously required self-sacrifice on his part. Our salvation meant his death. He bore our sins. Think about that just for a moment. The sinless one bore your sins past, present, and future. And not just yours, but the sins of all believers for all time. Let's personalize this a little bit. The reason he had to face the beatings, the scourgings, the mockings, the crucifixion itself, he had to face all that brutality associated with the cross because the wrath of God was being poured out on him instead of you. He was struck because your sin required it. He suffered the agony of the cross because that was the death you deserved to die for your sin. And it says in the text, he did it for a purpose, that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. His selfless sacrifice was God's means of saving you. And through his death, you died. And through his resurrection, you now live. Uh, this word bore, says he himself bore in verse 24. Bore is a sacrificial word. And it's a reference to the scapegoat in the Old Testament. Where the sins of the people were placed on the animal and then the animal was driven away. The sins were transferred to the goat. And it was the goat that paid the price for the sins of the people. I want to suggest to you that it was, and just think with me on this for a moment, that it was not the impending physical torture and agony of the cross that, that wrenched Jesus' soul in Gethsemane. But it was the prospect of having all our sin placed on him as our sin bearer. Sin which he never knew, he had never committed, and for which he was not guilty. He was about to bear the sins of the entire world for all time. The wrath of God was about to be placed on him, and never had any man suffered so greatly. It is the very definition of selflessness. The others endured crucifixion. There were lots of people crucified at that time. But nobody, nobody was sinless, nor did they bear the sins of believers for all time. Nobody else could do that. That was Jesus. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ also, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin 
to those who eagerly await him. For by his wounds you were healed. 24b. Look at that. Verse 24. Notice that Peter flips back to the second person now. That means you. And I think what he's doing here is picking up the encouragement to the slaves again. Because he's talking about, I mean, if anyone would understand the unjust suffering of Christ, it would be a slave, right? A person without rights. They certainly would have understood the terminology that he chose about wounds and stripes. By the way, the word stripes is actually singular. It's stripe. And Peter is talking about, obviously, a mark or a welt left on the skin by scourging, but but this is a singular noun, which means it's referring to the ultimate mark made by the stroke of death. The death blow. He took the death blow, the death stroke, one strike for all. And life for all who would believe. But he selflessly surrendered himself to death that we might live. Again, an obvious allusion to Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced through for our transgression. In other words, not his own. He was crushed for our iniquities, not his own. He was chastened for our well-being, not his own. And he was scourged. And by his scourging, we get the benefit. We are healed. And back to First Peter 2. Notice the first word in verse 25, for. You were, you were sheep that had... It's explanatory, that's the point. You were, because you were sheep that had left the pen, you had wandered off, you had put yourself in harm's way. Think about it. Sheep driven by dogs, wandering alone, falling into pits, bleeding with exposure and fatigue, lost, easy prey for lions, wolves, certain to perish unless rescued by the shepherd. You had gone astray. By the, word, the, by the way, the word astray is the word planomenoi. I almost tied my tongue on that. That's a hard one to say. Uh, it's where we get the word planets from. And it means wandering. You'd wandered off. The planets are wandering through the night sky is, is where the word comes from. And so, you were going astray. You were wandering off in certain peril. And then there's a very large contrast in the text here. But you have been returned. It's passive. It's a passive verb. You have been returned. You have been brought back. The action is done to us. We don't do the action. You understand that? You didn't come back. You were brought back to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The Savior in a rescue mission came down the mountain. 
through the thorns and briars, over the jagged rocks, and seeing us, he, he found us, and laying us upon his shoulders, he brought us back to his care and to his fold. He is the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. Thomas has been preaching about the good shepherd here in John 10. Jesus is the good shepherd. He loves the sheep. He knows them by name. He cares for them. Unlike other false shepherds who, who want to kill and destroy the sheep, he cares for them in a way that nobody else does. The shepherd and guardian. It's the word episkopos. It's used over in chapter 5 for overseers. Where we get the word episcopalian from. Episcopos, overseer, scopos, episcopos. It's a, it's a term for the elders of the church. Whereas Christ is an example in chapter 2, the charge to the elders is to be an example or a type to the local flock as to how to be obedient in the midst of suffering. Look over there, chapter Five verses 1 to 5. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock and when the chief shepherd appears you'll receive the unfading crown of glory and catch this you younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another for god is opposed opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble it's it's again the the idea of submission mission in the midst of suffering so how do you how do you find the strength to overcome unjust suffering in a godly way and i think i've said it already but james 4 7 the answer is humility humility and it's obedience it's humbling yourself under god's hand and it's obeying god no matter what the circumstances we, we may not be able to change the circumstances of life, but what can we change? How we respond. Philippians 2, have this mind or attitude in yourself that was in Jesus. And that attitude, that mind was humility, right? He existed in the form of God, but... But he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he did what? He humbled himself in mind and then assumed the posture of a servant. That's the point of the text is that Jesus had all the rights to glory, perfect relationship with God the Father and and the Holy Spirit, but he humbled himself in mind and then served. That's what... Paul is after in that text. It's humility of mind. And I believe the answer boils down to this. It's trust. 
Are you willing to trust God with your well-being? The uh, believers nowadays, I've talked to a lot of folks, and, you know, I'm I'm a hospice chaplain, and and so um, anxiety, fear, worry, anger, depression, they all result when we don't entrust ourselves to God. We try to control outcomes ourselves. And if you struggle in these areas, I, I would just encourage you, in fact, I beg you, just to listen to Peter's words this morning. 1 Peter 4.19 Those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Trust. It's a trust issue. Are you going to trust God or are you going to keep trying to control things yourself? And you're talking to a guy here who used to have panic attacks like nobody's business. I used to struggle with anxiety like, like nobody you know. I mean, if I had to drive somewhere, my wife can testify to this, I would, I would get out my Thomas guide and I would map that trip out so that I knew all the possible exits off the freeway all along the way two weeks in advance. I was super, super anxious. And you know how I got over it? I had to trust God. I had to pray. I had to understand that even if something doesn't go the way I want it to, it's still God's best for me. It's trust. And beloved, we learn a lot by observing our Savior. I've got to tell you. Christ suffered sinlessly. He suffered silently. He suffered selflessly. Try that next time. Try it. See how it works for you. Let me know. <laughs> and now these things are really only possible to the degree that we're walking in the Spirit and yielding ourselves to God and His will for our lives. You know, if we're walking in the flesh, forget about it. We've got to walk in the Spirit. Hebrews 12.3 Consider Him who endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You know, it's easy to lose heart in the midst of suffering. It's easy to be discouraged. And sometimes it is unjust suffering. There's no, I mean, it's not right. It's just not right. But what we're saying is that God controls even the wicked. Everything falls under His sovereign hand. Not just the good, but He uses evil for His purposes. He's not the source of evil, but He uses it for His purposes. Everything in this universe is subject to our sovereign Lord. And that, that means it's not some, you know, uh, Eastern mysticism, yin and yang, where evil and good are caught in some eternal struggle. That's not how it is. God is sovereign even over evil. Our God is sovereign. And that's why Jesus could entrust himself to God because he knew in the end God would be the one to judge. Beloved, 
Let's not grow weary. Let's not lose heart in our unjust suffering. But let's learn from it. Let's be sanctified from our Savior's example of how He endured suffering. And may we, by God's grace, be used to draw others to our loving Shepherd who loved us and gave Himself for us. May He be the one to receive all glory. Let's pray.